0: The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Good morning. It's great to see you. My name is Derek Brown. I'm one of the pastors and elders here this morning, and I have the privilege of opening God's Word to you. And uh, we have the privilege together of looking back over these last two years. If you'll notice the title of the message today, I mentioned that this is our two year checkup and some of you may be wondering what that even means. On July 1, 2019, Creekside Community Church and Grace Bible Fellowship became Creekside Bible Church. And there may be some of you here today who didn't realize that this church that you're sitting in right now is actually the product of a merge of two churches from nearly two years ago. So we're coming up on our two year anniversary this July 1st. And I think it's time for our two-year checkup. And so for those of you who are not familiar with how this all came about, and maybe some of those of you who are but want to hear it again, I want to share with you how this merged, just briefly how this merge came about. A lot of neat providential things, not all of which I can cover. I would love to share with you just the various providential details of how the Lord worked this out. And, but I'm just going to share briefly, I can do that with you privately, but just briefly I want to share with you how this all happened, how the Lord made this all happen. About two and a half years ago, I wandered into a Gospel Coalition pastor's lunch down at a church in Campbell with a friend of mine who's the pastor there at Orchard Community Church, Little sweet little church, friends with him. and. He oversees this pastor's lunch. And so I went there and and I walked in and got to to know some of the guys there. And I can't remember if this is my first time or one of the few times I've been there. But this one time I did go, there was a, I met a a man who was big. I mean, we're talking big, like six, five and wide shoulders and um, big old beard. And I introduced myself or he introduced himself to me. I can't remember is Justin Duran. And he was the pastor at Creekside Community Church here in Cupertino, and we sat down for lunch, and he was with Justin Kraft, his associate, and we sat down to lunch, and we got to talking, and he asked where I was at, and I said I'm at Grace Bible Fellowship, and he said with Cliff McManus, and I said yeah, with Cliff McManus. He says let me tell you what happened between me and Cliff McManus. I'm like uh oh no. Um, <laughs> he then told a story about how a little while before uh, that that Cliff had come over to his church. This is during one of Cliff's staycations. You guys have ever heard of a staycation? We're all familiar with staycations now because of COVID. But back in the day, you used to take a staycation. Meant you took some time off of work. You didn't go anywhere. You just stayed home. But Cliff was doing that one uh, Sunday, and he took uh, his son Rustin over to Creekside Community Church for church, and came in and sat down and listened, worshiped together, and listened to the preaching. And afterwards, went up to. Justin and said, Hey, brother, just want to encourage you. Thank you for the expositional preaching. Uh, Here are a few of my books. I just want to encourage you to keep pressing on in the ministry. And so Justin's relaying this to me. And then Justin says, And you know what? Had it not been for that encouragement, I may have hung up my hat on pastoral ministry. Because apparently Justin had been having a, a rough go at it the last three years. It just been a challenging time. And uh, so this providential meeting of Cliff coming into the church and then encouraging Justin was enough to encourage him to keep going in the ministry. And so then I told Justin, I was like, you got to tell Cliff that. And so then he sent an email over to Cliff and said, hey, I just wanted to say again, thanks for coming. And this is how things have transpired and turned out. And Cliff says, hey, let's get lunch together. And so they did. They got lunch together. And over the next few months, our, our, uh, next few months, our staff developed a relationship with Justin and his staff and we would get together for lunches, and occasionally our uh, associates, associate pastors would come over here and fill the pulpit, and then they would occasionally open up their facility for us to use, which is a huge blessing because Grace Bible Fellowship was a nomadic church, you might say. Within even the couple of years that I'd been at uh, Grace Bible Fellowship, we had been at four different locations. And one of which was there for only three months at a time. And so it was, it was a challenging thing. We were a nomadic church, I'd like to say. And Justin offering to open this facility for us to use for some uh, occasions was really helpful. Well, Cliff and Justin continued to meet together. And just about every time they would meet, if not every time, Justin would kind of allude to saying, hey, we should, we should merge or think about merging or something like that. And that happened a few times until finally the fourth time Cliff said, hey, are you serious? He just kind of let it go. And then finally, uh, one of the times he said, hey, are you serious? And that began the process of our two uh, sets of leaders coming together. And after multiple months of meetings with the pastoral staff of both churches, holding joint services, hosting interviews with the elders for both congregations, rewriting church documents, we officially merged on July 1st, 2019. Now that is a that is a flyover summary of what happened. There's a lot of providential details that I could share but on that date July 1st 2019 Creekside Community Church and Grace Bible Fellowship became Creekside Bible Church and that's the church that you are in presently right now and after a few months of remodeling we finally moved into this facility here in October of 2019 and I hope I have my dates right because you know COVID the last year I feel like it's just poof it's gone and so I may have I hope I have all my dates right I think I do Well, plenty of people have asked me how this merge has gone, people outside the situation. Because not only do you not hear of merges a whole lot, but you typically hear of church splits more often than you do of merges. And then people are familiar with corporate merges, and they don't always go as planned. And so the question has been to me on a regular basis, how has it gone? People outside the uh, situation have asked me, how's it gone? And apart from the typical frustrations that come along with any kind of construction project, my response has been, it's gone exceedingly well. It's been my response. And I want to ask the question in light of our topic today, our two-year checkup, I want to ask the question, why? Why do I think it's gone so well from my perspective? See, I've had the advantage of observing the process from the standpoint of not only a member, but of a staff member. And not only a staff member, but also one of the elders. I have an intimate acquaintance and knowledge of how the pastoral team interacted with each other. And it was during that time that I was interacting with the members and the pastoral team, it became clear to me that there was a key spiritual ingredient that God, by His grace, had worked into the hearts of our people and our leadership that has led to a smooth and lasting transition. You know, thankfully, during the merge process, we realized that there was strong doctrinal agreement between the two churches. We had doctrinal agreement, we had faithful members, we had doctrinal fidelity, we agreed on our philosophy of ministry, we had a similar vision for discipleship and evangelism and outreach. All those things are in place. It actually made that part of the process Uh, come together rather seamlessly as we discuss these things and documents and and so on? But was that all that we needed? That's the question. Could it have just come together with all those things being being in place? And I would say, no. As we walked through this process of merging two congregations, two leadership teams, it became obvious to me that the crucial spiritual quality that would prepare the soil of our new church to bear the fruit of unity and the fruit of love, that key characteristic, that key character quality was humility. It was humility. From where I stood, that was the key spiritual component. And this conclusion, this realization is supported, I think, by Scripture and by my experience. Through the merge, I had the honor of watching people lay down their own interests out of deference for others, and for the health of the greater body. I beheld a willingness in many to work quietly in the background. I beheld in people a willingness to lay aside their desire for recognition, their desire for personal glory, and to consider other people's interests as more important than their own. I had the privilege of seeing that on three different levels, as an elder, as a pastoral staff member, and as a member of CBC. So what would God say to CBC on the brink of our two-year anniversary? From my judgment and the judgment of the other elders and from other members, CBC can be considered, I think, a healthy church. We're not a perfect church. No one's making that claim, but I think we are a a healthy church. We have doctrinal agreement and fidelity. We have a faithful membership. We see a love for Christ and others expressed in genuine and consistent ways among the people of CBC. We regularly see self-sacrificial service and generosity. We see fruitful ministry. We see relational warmth. We see edifying fellowship. That's what we see. I'm not making these things up. This is what I have the privilege of seeing. This is what you're seeing. And this is what the elders are seeing. This is what the pastoral staff is seeing. Praise God. But as we do come to this two-year checkpoint, the question is, do I have any biblical template around which I can craft a sermon to speak to a church like this. And I think that we do have a biblical template. Let's turn over to Philippians chapter two. We've already heard this text, so I'm not gonna read through it with, us, with you again, but let's turn over there if you haven't already. The reason why I think this is an important text and a relevant text is because unlike the Uh, some of the other churches that Paul wrote to in the New Testament, like Galatians, for example. The Philippian church didn't have any doctrinal aberrations so far as we can tell. Galatians was having real trouble with the gospel. But not Philippians. The the Philippians seemed to have that squared away. They didn't seem to have trouble with eschatological questions like the churches at Thessalonica. Paul doesn't mention that. Doesn't seem to be the case. Doesn't have to bring it up. They didn't seem to have flagrant public sin going on, like the church in Corinth. Paul doesn't say anything about that. There didn't seem to be the encroachment of strange philosophies in the Philippian church, like were happening in, for example, the Colossian church. Overall, the Philippian church seemed to be healthy. Doctrine is sound. Members were walking with the Lord. But was there something that threatened to undermine the health of the Philippian church? Was there something that, if they, if there was there a spiritual quality that, if they failed to pursue it, would overturn the progress that they had made? And I would submit to you, submit to you that yes, there was something, and we have a hint of it in Philippians chapter four, verse two. Paul says this to a, two dear saints in the congregation. I entreat Eudia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. What was going on here? Well, Paul is writing publicly to the church in Philippi, and now he's addressing these two ladies publicly and saying that you need to get along. Having Having some sort of spat. You know, they loved the Lord Jesus. They were working side by side with Paul for the gospel. They were believers. They loved the church. Their names are written in the book of life. But apparently their disagreement had reached such a pitch that now Paul has to address them and address them publicly for their names to always be now in the book of Philippians for the last 2,000 years. So Paul has to address this. And the question is, is why would Paul the apostle apostle the great theological apostle, get concerned and get his hands in the nitty-gritty of personal relationships in the church of Philippi to the point where he has to call out publicly two ladies who are not getting along. Why, Paul? What's the deal with that? The reason why Paul has to get his hands hands dirty in the nitty-gritty of personal relationships is precisely because it is at the level of personal relationship that the health of the entire body hinged. You can have doctrinal agreement about the grand truths of the Christian faith. You can enjoy philosophical alignment regarding the goal and aim of ministry. But if you have unresolved personal conflict among the members, the church as a whole will be weakened and unity will be compromised. There's just no way around it. So Paul is going to address this otherwise faithful church and provide them with the key spiritual attribute that they need to pursue for the sake of their long-term health and joy. As I've already noted, that spiritual quality is humility. And we should expect this to be the case, shouldn't we? If we know the New Testament, we should expect this to be the case. It shouldn't surprise us that Paul would bring this all together into this one spiritual quality of humility. Because James says it like this. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's a comprehensive statement. And then Peter says something similar. He exhorts both the elders and the members of the congregation to clothe themselves with humility because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So if you want God to oppose your ministry, oppose your spiritual walk, oppose your church. If you want God to set himself up against you, all you have to do is cultivate pride, cultivate a desire for personal recognition, cultivate a a looking down upon others, and you will set up God against yourself and against your congregation. But, On the flip side, if you want God to pour grace upon grace upon your spiritual life and upon your congregation, then pursue what James is talking about here and what Paul will be talking about in Philippians 2 and what Peter's talking about in 1 Peter 5, namely, humility. It is the Christian graces of all Christian graces. It is the root of everything. And that's the comprehensive nature of James' statement. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. There's no other choice. But what is humility and what does it look like in action? Well, before we can answer those questions, we have to first start with the the beginning portion of this passage. Would you turn with me now to look at verses 1 and 2? And if you're following along on an outline, this is the outline will say, This is the corporate fruit of humility. What is the corporate fruit of humility? Let's see what Paul's talking about here. Paul begins by saying, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and in one mind. What is he saying here? Well, These conditional statements are not to be read as mere possibilities. Actually, the way it's constructed in the original text is you could read it like this. If there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is, If there is any comfort from love, and there is, these are things that are already happening within the congregation. Paul wasn't doubting their spiritual health. He's saying that in the course of normal, healthy church life, there is something that you need to maintain so that your progress isn't hindered. And what is that that needs to be maintained? Verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being of full accord and of one mind. What is it that they need to pursue Continually, they need to pursue unity. Unity. That's what Paul wants for the Philippian congregation. He's starting to see a little bit of a fracture of it. He brings it up in Philippians 4:2. He wants this congregation to be unified. Unity. It's not uniformity. This is an important thing. Cults like uniformity. Churches like unity. Uniformity would be saying something like, everybody in the congregation must like the Golden State Warriors and not the L.A. Lakers. Actually, come to think of it. No, I'm just kidding. That would be uniformity. Or, everyone in the congregation must like the San Francisco 49ers and not the Las Vegas Raiders. Now, Actually, come to think of it, those aren't good examples at all. No, I'm just kidding. No, you can be a member of CBC and not like the Golden State Warriors. It's hard for me to say that. No, again. Um, So we're not talking about uniformity. We're not talking about needing to agree on every last thing in detail in your life or sports teams or what kind of clothes to wear or what kind of places to shop and these kinds of things. We're not talking about uniformity. That's not what Paul is talking about. You can be a member at CBC and like the L.A. Lakers better than the Golden State Warriors or like the Raiders better than the 49ers. Rather, what Paul is talking about is he's talking about agreement and purpose and unity in love. The affection and participation in the Spirit that he talks about in verses 1 and 2 would be deeply wounded if disunity began to creep into the church and personal relationships started to become fractured. So what does Paul tell us to do? Well, it leads that call to unity leads directly into verse 3. And now we come to the heart of the passage here. How do you bring about unity? Just by fiat? Just poof? No. Verse 3. He's going to explain to us how that happens. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. How is unity maintained in otherwise faithful churches where you have doctrinal fidelity and and a faithful membership. It is maintained by intentionally cultivating Christ-like humility. If we have a congregation of spirit-led, Christ-like, humble members, regular tenders, then we will have unity at CBC, even if you disagree on who the greatest football and basketball teams are. Isn't that exciting? But what is humility? You know, we have to ask this question. Some of the most basic things in scripture, you have to ask, how do we define that? And this word particularly, because it just seems like every, it's just cool to be humble these days, isn't it? It's just, everybody's talking about humility. What is, how, how, do, how does the, our culture typically define humility? Well, I looked it up to see what a common definition would be and it's often characterized humility these days is often characterized by quietness soft spokenness here's my favorite non assertiveness that was literally a part of a definition that i found for humility not being assertive <laughs> oh boy and a lack of conviction about a lack of conviction about socially important topics to hem and to haw about important truths and to claim uncertainty about things that are very important gets you classified as being humble. Oh, you're so humble. You're not sure about the right way to heaven. Or you're not sure about certain truths and uh, it's humble. It might even get you an interview with Oprah because you're so humble about religion. Well, scripture doesn't define humility in theological terms. Scripture defines humility in glory terms. The Best way to think about it is this: is, is this way. Whose glory are you pursuing, God's or yours? Your neighbor's glory or, or your glory? Humility has nothing to do with being non-assertive. You can be truly humble, biblically speaking, and be exceedingly assertive about what the truth is. As we'll see in our example as we look, go through this passage, our example in Christ. See, we don't answer the humility question in theological terms, we answered in glory terms. Whose glory are you seeking? That will determine whether or not you are a humble person. All right, so let's now go to the next part of our outline the basic qualities of humility. The basic qualities of humility. He's going to start in verse three do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. So he's first going to give us the negative part of the definition do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Humility is characterized by a lack of something. You can't just stop there and only offer the negative. We will need to offer the positive, but at the very least we need to say that humility, true humility, is characterized by a lack of something. A lack of selfish ambition and conceit. A person who is growing in Christ-like humility by the power of the Spirit will be someone who is not pursuing their career, or their family life, or their recreational life, or their financial life, or their church life, or their ministry life with selfish ambition. This phrase in, in the ESV, selfish ambition, translates one word in the original. I, in the NASB, it, the New American Standard Bible, it's translated as selfishness. The NIV translates it also as selfish ambition. These are good translations. And they capture what that word in the original is saying. We are to do nothing motivated by selfish goals. We are to do nothing with selfish ambition. Well, let's ask ourselves, what is selfish ambition? We have to ask ourselves this too, because ironically, ambition in certain circles is frowned upon. It's looked down upon. To have ambition is unspiritual. It's ungodly. Well... We need to reject that idea because actually there is nothing wrong with ambition, believe it or not. Actually, healthy Christians will have a lot of ambition. They'll have strong ambition. Listen to Paul, for example, how the New American Standard translates 2 Corinthians five nine. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. His ambition. Or... What Paul told the Christians in 1 Thessalonians 4.11 to make it their ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to their own business and to work with their hands. Ambition is not the problem. If you're a Christian today walking with the Lord, you will likely have strong ambition for certain things. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Ambition's not the problem. What's the problem? Selfish ambition is the problem. Selfish ambition is what causes problems in your life and in the life of the church. When your ambition or your aim in life is to exalt yourself or please yourself or to fulfill all your needs and all your desires and interests, you can be as soft-spoken and non-assertive and self-deprecating uh, as you want, but you're not humble. You will run over and use people to get what you want while acting humble, but, but godly ambition is like this, godly ambition is characterized like this. Godly ambition lives to exalt and please God and to make much of Christ through our work, through our recreation, through our family, through our finances, and through our ministry. Godly ambition is happy to go without any recognition so long as Christ gets the glory and his people get the joy. That's godly ambition. Once you love that more and more of us had that kind of ambition? Let that kind of ambition grow all the more. Godly ambition, as we will see in this text, is passionate about the interests of others. That's godly ambition. The word conceit here in the ESV has reference to self-importance, arrogance, high-mindedness, thinking of ourselves as better or superior than others, and therefore on that basis, entitled to having my interests and my desires met above and beyond yours. That's what conceit would mean here. Paul doesn't leave, here's here's where we need to let the, the passage stand. Paul doesn't leave room for any selfish ambition or conceit in the Christian life. You see how strong of a statement is? Do nothing. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. We have to allow the text to have its full voice because we might want to kind of get out of that. that that's Boy, that's, that sounds pretty strong. Let's, have it ha- let's, have it, let's let it have its full voice. Paul is not allowing for any selfish ambition or conceit to creep into the Christian life. But here's the positive part of the definition. But in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. What does this mean? This has been a challenging passage, a verse for me, I think for others too. What does it mean to count others as more important than ourselves? Is that even possible? Well, it is possible, Paul, is, that's what he's saying, and he's not saying it tongue-in-cheek. I think he gives us some help in Romans 12, 10 when he says, quote, Outdo one another in showing honor. Part of considering another person is more important than ourselves is counting that person as more worthy of honor than ourselves. That, in part, is at least some of the definition. But he's going to tell us what he means as he goes on. But I want to just stop right there and, and, and ponder over the straightforwardness of this statement. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit consider others as more important than yourselves, this kind of statement just grates against our natural inclinations, doesn't it? I mean, if we were honest, how does that make you feel? Do you ever consider these kinds of questions when you hear statements like that? Do you ever think, how can I count others, count others as more important than myself? Who will take care of me? If I, take, if I count others as more important than myself, who will take care of my interests? If I treat others as more important than myself, I will fade into obscurity. If I treat others as more important than myself, I won't have any joy because I'll never get what I want. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, do you you occasionally, do those questions creep up when you hear these kinds of statements from Paul? That's how the natural flesh reasons. If If I'm concerned about my neighbor to such a degree as that, who's going to take care of me and my interests? It's just kind of the natural question. But here's what's interesting, Paul does not attempt to answer that problem or those questions immediately or directly. He is going to answer them indirectly later in the passage, as we'll see, in a remarkable way. But he doesn't try to answer them directly or immediately here. He simply assumes that the Spirit is at work in the Philippian congregation in such a way, the Spirit is at work in CBC in such a way that the hearers would hear the goodness of these commandments and desire to follow through in them. He is confident that the Spirit is at work in them, beginning to help us set aside these natural inclinations and trust the Lord that as I give myself to serving others and considering other people's interests is more important than my own, then I will be granted by God a superior satisfaction than just looking out for myself. Paul trusts that that is happening among the Philippian congregation. That's why he can say such strong things to them and to us. Now, what does it look like to... Consider others as more important than ourselves, or more significant than ourselves as the ESV has it. He's going to tell us. Verse 4, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, this is an interesting translation. And if you're reading your New American Standard, you might see in italics the word merely. And here in the ESV, the words only, and but also are only and also are are added in the translation. So in the NASB you have merely added, and in the ESV you have only and also, to help give you a sense of what Paul's talking about here. You might be wondering why add those words? Well, presumably it's in order to help us not draw the conclusion that Paul is forbidding us from ever seeking our own interests. Is Paul saying you can never absolutely, under no conditions, ever seek your own interests? And I, I think just from our knowledge of Paul's writings elsewhere, we can we can conclude that that's probably not what he's saying. For example, Paul tells his readers that we're free to engage in marriage. We're free to eat and drink. We're free to work and earn our own living. In fact, we even saw that earlier in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You do have interests that you're responsible to fulfill. And that's just part of life. But even among these activities, that even among these interests that we are required to fulfill, Paul tells us that we are guided by love and the glory of God even in these interests. And we need to take consideration of our neighbors and how our actions and words affect other people and serve them. See, we have a multitude of interests that concern us, don't we? Even today, even this morning, you currently have a multitude of interests that concern you. You have financial interests. You have parenting interests, you have educational interests, you have family interests, you have career interests, you have ministry interests, but Paul is including your entire life in this statement. He is saying, as you consider your whole life and all the interests that concern you, do not, and here's a way you could translate it, do not pay close attention to. That's one way you could say it. ESV says, look. Another way to say it is pay close attention to. Do not pay close attention to your own interests, but the interests of others. It's a strong statement. If you take away the only and also in the merely, and just read it as it's given in the original, it's a very strong statement. Do not pay close attention to your own interests, but to the interests of others. What does this mean? It means that we're not wrapped up in our own desires and dreams and needs. Or as the statement, love your neighbor as yourself implies, let your care and concern over your own interests be the measure by which you have concern over the interests of others. That's what Christianity lived out looks like. You have interests and concern over your financial situation, and there's nothing wrong with that. But you should also have concern for your brother's and sister's financial situation. You're not only wrapped up in your financial situation, you're thinking about your struggling brother or your struggling sister over here in their financial situation. How can I help them? You have a desire to be fruitful in ministry, but that shouldn't be all that you think about. You should be thinking about how to make others fruitful in ministry. In fact, as it turns out, in that kind of reciprocal way, the Christian life has been structured as you are seeking the fruitfulness of other people in ministry, you yourself are being fruitful in ministry. You have interests related to your personal happiness, but don't be just wrapped up in your own personal happiness. Paul tells us to consider the happiness of your neighbor, the happiness of your brothers and your sisters. It's it's a strong statement. Why? Because we naturally wrap ourselves up with and think mainly, if not exclusively, about our own interests. It's just what we do. It's just what we do. But here Paul is calling the church in Philippi and the church here at CBC to no longer walk according to our natural inclinations, but walk a supernatural life where our affections are being so transformed that we are thinking even sometimes first and foremost about our neighbors' interests affections which lead us to pay closer attention to the interests of others than even our own interests. But we're not left with a command or an abstraction. And this is what's so wonderful about this passage. This is why this passage is probably popular among so many believers. Because we're not just left with a command or an abstraction. We're actually given a concrete example, illustration. We're given a person to see this is what humility looks like. It doesn't look like CNN. It doesn't look like Oprah. It looks like Jesus Christ. What does humility look like? It's, this is humility right here. This is what it means to look to another's interest rather than your own. This is what it means to do nothing from selfish ambi- ambition or conceit. This is what it means to, in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. If you want to know what it looks like and what it means, we have no better example or definition than right here, verses 5 through 8, the supreme example of humility. It's Jesus Christ. It's the Son of God. Verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, or another way to say it, which is in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's humility. The text says here that that Jesus, in his pre-incarnate state, before he became a man, he was in the form of God. And that phrase, form of God, has been co-opted by certain so-called Christian groups to say that, see here, Jesus was something less than God. That's utterly not what the passage or that phrase means. Like, he was in the form of God. Like, you look up at the clouds and you see a cloud and you're like, hey, that cloud is in the form of a horse. It's the outline of a horse. But it's not, it doesn't have the essence of a horse, it just has the form of a horse. It has the essence of a cloud. And some would argue that's similar to what's happening here. He he is in the form of God, but not in his essence. Well, actually, this uh, word and the, what Paul doing here means the exact opposite. Paul is saying that the, the Son of God is actually God of very God in his pre-incarnate state. He is saying emphatically that the Son of God is God of very God. He shares God the Father's nature. He is as fully God as he is fully man. As he says here, he took on the form of a servant. The Son of God, this is perhaps one of the most beautiful things that you'll find in the New Testament. The Son of God did not consider his position as the creator of the universe something to hold on merely for his own advantage. He could have, but he didn't. Though, in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. During his incarnation and before and after, Jesus was always and fully God. One hundred percent. But he did not see that status in that position as something to hold on to merely for his own benefit. What did he do? He gave up the position and prerogatives of the Creator for a time and took upon Himself a genuine human nature to serve God and to serve us. He never, ever ceased to be God for one moment. Some argue that that is what Paul's saying here. That is utterly wrong. He never ceased to be God for one moment. But He humbled Himself by taking on a genuine human nature and bearing with the limitations of human finitude, He bore with the burden of living in a fallen world while placing himself under the authority of his father all the way to death on the cross. Humility looks like obedience to the father all the way, even if it means a cross. Why did he do that? So that his father would be glorified for his perfect justice and his lavish grace in forgiving sinners and so that you and I could be rescued from the tyranny of sin and everlasting judgment. That's why the Son of God did what he did. That's humility. He did not say, no, no, I I like this position. I love this regal position of exaltation and looking down upon these lowly servants and I would prefer to judge them for all eternity. No, he takes on the form of a servant. He humbles himself to the Father's will, even to the point of dying on the cross. That itself is humility. Jesus Christ beheld his Father's glorious plan. He beheld the plight of sinners. He laid aside not his deity, but the rights and privileges of his position as God. He took upon himself a genuine human nature. He lived in a sin-cursed earth. He bore the shame and betrayal and the grief of desertion by his closest friends. He endured the mockery of a religious elite. He endured the mockery of a fickle crowd and the Roman authorities. He allowed himself to be nailed to a Roman cross in order to bear the punishment of every single sin that you and I have ever committed. And then after all that, dying several hours, after several hours of intense physical and spiritual suffering." He set aside, here it is, he set aside his own interests of physical comfort, his own interests of earthly praise and recognition for the eternal benefit of his people and the eternal glory of God. He considered fallen human rebels as more important than himself. He considered our salvation and his Father's glory more important than his earthly comfort and fame. That's who the Son is by his nature. You know, so many of us are trying to be humble. We we try, we try. It's just not natural to who we are. Jesus didn't try. This is who he is. He is humble. The Son of God heard his Father's instruction, and he followed through all the way to death. He humbled himself for the Father's glory and for our benefit. And because he refused to grasp his own position for personal gain, and because he refused to look out for his own interests, we have now been forgiven of all of our sins. And for that reason now, first and foremost, for that reason that he's died for all of our sins, we can now follow in his example. Can't get those two confused. But nevertheless, we have been given an example. What does humility look like in an otherwise healthy church? In light of Christ's example, it looks like individual leaders and members considering others and members is more important than themselves. It looks like leaders and members of CBC not using their position or influence or authority for their own personal gain or praise, but for the good of others and for the common good of the whole congregation. That's what humility looks like. You know, as we were making our way through the merge process, I had the privilege of seeing men on both sides of the leadership teams consider others as more important than themselves. And let me just give you some examples. Justin Duran was happy to let, this is in, early in the process, Pastor uh, Justin was happy to let Cliff remain the lead preaching pastor, even though Justin had been the lead preaching pastor here at CCC for the last several years. Just He was just happy to do it. Just That's what's going to happen. Right, guys? Now, you may have never been in that position. That's not an easy position to have been leading and preaching and then to hand that over. It's not easy. Justin was happy to do it. I saw Cliff then, in response to that, give up a significant portion of his regular preaching so that Justin and myself and JR could get more opportunities in the pulpit. Why? In order to help for the sake of the merge and for the sake of both congregations. Here's another example. Justin, as you know, he lived in the, the parsonage when we first merged. And again, similar to the, the offering of Cliff to be the lead pastor saying, and so you guys will live in the parsonage, right? So he's offering up the parsonage. And Cliff says, oh, no, 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 no. No, you guys will stay there. And I, I was there for these conversations, watching them happen. No, 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 no. You'll, you'll, you'll stay there. And here's the deal. At the time, Cliff and Debbie were living in a small apartment way, way, way south of the church. It would have been far more convenient to take Justin up on his offer. But Cliff said, no, you're gonna, you'll stay there. You and your family will stay there. You'll have the home. I'm, I'm, I'm watching these things happen. I saw Bob Douglas work tirelessly to oversee the remodeling of this campus, this wonderful gift of a campus, a project that took many, many hours of managing, facilitating, organizing, and planning. Something that I want no part in, frankly. And yet Bob managed it and did it all for the sake of us, for us. I saw Justin Kraft come into his new role with a desire to do whatever was required of him. Whatever he, whatever, you just tell me what it is, I'll do it. Whatever it is. And Bob, you kind of took him up on that, didn't you? Well, anyways, moving right along. (laughs) I saw Austin work long and painful hours to get the worship center acoustically ready. You don't know it, but there are wires strung up and down this, up through here, up to the rafters of this building that I think Austin spent hours upon hours doing. You'll never see it, and you never saw him do it, but he did for the sake of the congregation. I saw Jr. fulfill his roles, willing to do whatever it takes, whatever it took for the good of the congregation, doing multiple different things, things that we didn't do previously, he was doing. The theme among the leadership was this, we must do what is best for the body of Christ, even if it means some difficult changes and sacrifices. And we're saying these things to one another. We're reminding ourselves of these things. I saw other folks on staff and members of the church work diligently behind the scenes on structural work that people will never see or know about. You'll never know who did what in this building to bring it about. And they're happy. The, the, the people who've done it, they're happy with that. They don't want the recognition. They want you to get the joy and God to get the glory. For example, well, here's some names. Sorry, i got to do it. I saw Nathan and Jason Ng give hours of voluntary labor to remodel our two bathrooms upstairs in the Grace Building. Jason's going to make me pay for that later. So will Nathan. How dare you tell... No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I saw a large number of members and regular tenders give time and energy to demoing the worship center and give time to complete other projects around the congregation. And Cliff has already mentioned this. I believe Bob has. That saved us multiple thousands of dollars. Now, why were people doing that? To get their name in lights? To get them announced from the pulpit? No, not at all. It was for the good of their neighbor. It was for the good of the congregation. What was happening What was God doing among us? Leaders and members of CBC were laying down their lives and their interests in order to do what was best for the body of Christ and best for the individual members. They considered others as more important than themselves. And it led to a smooth and lasting transition. It began with a willingness, here it is going back to verses 3 and 4, it began with a willingness to lay aside selfish ambition. How would this have gone, this merge had gone, if everybody who was serving wanted their name on a plaque outside, or they wanted recognition from the pulpit, or they wanted to be known for the service that they had rendered? How well do you think this merge would have happened, or had gone? Well, that wasn't the case with anybody, as I know. What were, people were saying in their hearts and demonstrating in their lives was this, "I don't need any recognition so long as I know that Christ is exalted in this congregation. What a way to live." You know, frankly, seeking your own glory and pursuing selfish ambition, it's a burden to the regenerate soul. It's a burden. It's a joy and a freedom to cast that off and, and experience the joy of serving your neighbor and being only concerned that your brother and sister is served and only concerned that Christ gets the exaltation. I don't need to be recognized. What a joy and a freedom that is! That's what the gospel brings about in the life of the believer. Well, what does this humility brought about? What does this humility bring about in a congregation? What has this humility brought about? It com- It brings about unity. We've already seen it in verse. Two. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being a full accord and of one mind. Here's the deal: unity can only come by way of humility. There's no other option. We can't find another path to unity. If we are seeking something other, or if we're seeking unity through other something other than humility, it can't happen. You can have agreement on your doctrinal positions. You can have agreement on your philosophy of ministry. You can agree on your philosophy of worship and evangelism and discipleship, but without humility, namely the willingness to lay aside your pursuit of personal glory and selfish ambition for the sake of God's glory and the good of your brothers and sisters at CBC, this church cannot thrive. It cannot grow spiritually. It just just can't. It's just not possible according to what we've seen in James 4.6 and 1 Peter 5. But that's not all. And here's what's Amazing about this passage. That's not all. Remember I said that Paul doesn't immediately answer those questions that you might have about, hey, who's going to take care of me if I'm laying down my life for other people's interests? Who's going to be concerned about my interests? Paul's going to answer that concern here now indirectly. We do know that humble service to others carries with it its own reward, doesn't it? Have you experienced this? Acts 20, 35, it's more blessed to give than receive. If you're a believer, you've, you've likely experienced this many times over. Walking in humility and laying down your life for others in the power of Christ brings great joy in and of itself. It brings you joy and freedom to lay down your life for others. Jonathan Edwards said this, I love this quote quote the pleasures of humility are the most refined, inward, and exquisite delights in the world. So humility carries with it its own reward. It's a blessing to serve others. It's a blessing to lay aside selfish ambition. It's a blessing to lay aside the desire for personal glory and to be willing to give up all of that so that Christ is exalted without any recognition for what I've done. It's a freedom, it's a joy, it's a pleasure. But Paul doesn't just stop there. He implicitly promises you something else as well. Notice what he does here with Christ. Because of what Jesus did, therefore, so because of Jesus' humbling himself to take the form of a servant, humbling himself all the way to the point of death, Death, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is, what's happening here in in the life of Jesus? We're seeing here that the reward for humility is, to the lowest place, the reward for humbling yourself to the lowest place is exaltation to the highest place. The reward for humbling oneself in this life to the lowest place is exaltation in the age to come, to the highest place. Jesus Christ now reigns as the God-man and his reign will someday be acknowledged by every person on the planet. Why? Why? Paul connects it with the word, therefore. Why? Because he humbled himself to the point of death, doing everything that the Father had commanded him to do. Now, what does this have to do with us? Remember, Paul is instructing the Philippians and us, of course, to walk in humility like Jesus. That's the command. Remember, the command is at the beginning, and here's the example seen in Jesus. But the command is for the the Philippians to walk in humility, to lay down our selfish pursuits and our desire for glory earthly glory and recognition and to give ourselves to serving others because that is what christ did and he was exalted and we've heard this principle before and we've heard it from jesus the one who humbles himself will be what exalted that's not an empty promise that just jesus is using in his earthly ministry to motivate people It's a real promise that will be fulfilled. The one who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, while laying down your life in pursuit of personal recognition has its own joy, God also promises to reward humility in this life with exaltation in the life to come. God exalted uh, exalted his son to the highest place because Jesus humbled himself to the lowest place. Someday you will be exalted with Jesus, not to the highest place, There's only one God-man who's exalted above the heavens, who sits at the right hand of the Father. But you will be exalted along with him nevertheless. There is language in the New Testament. If it weren't in the New Testament, you'd have a hard time believing it, talking about how we will reign and rule with Christ, sitting with him, ruling with him, being exalted with him, inheriting all the universe with him. What does this mean for us then? When you pay closer attention to others' interests than you do your own, you don't need to worry about missing out on joy because your Father will reward your humble and faithful service. He will do it. Hebrews 6 says that he won't forget the love that you have shown the saints. He won't forget it. It's locked into his memory for all eternity, and he will make sure to exalt you for your humility. You're laying down your interest in this life and someday you will be resurrected to live in a new earth with God and Christ with your brothers and sisters for all eternity and you will be exalted. Coming a day when you will be exalted and vindicated before all the world because you have maintained your faith in Christ and as the world has rejected Him and laughed in your face, you will someday be vindicated as having believed the truth. You will be exalted. Ultimately, you don't miss out on anything. We don't miss out on anything when we live for the glory of God and the benefit of others. That's not just throwaway cliche. That is the heart and soul of New Testament ethics. God promises to reward humility with a future exaltation. He shows us in Christ and he implicitly encourages us with that as a motivation for pursuing humility. And that's my continued prayer for CBC. I believe that if God is gracious to us and continues to instill genuine Christ-like humility in this people, we will continue to enjoy unity, growth, joy, wonderful fellowship, and health. And so my prayer is that God would continue to do this, continue to work Christ-like humility in each member and in each leader so that our unity would be protected and that it would even grow. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for what a marvelous passage this is, showing off the Son of God. His humility is beautiful because it is uncoerced, unforced. It's who he is. It's who he is to lay down his life for rebels, to set aside earthly comfort and exaltation in order to get us forgiveness and get God glory for his grace and for his perfect justice. Help us to see this beauty in Christ and to walk in it, not because we are trying to earn our salvation by our humility, but rather because we've been saved by Christ's work, we can now walk in humility. And I ask that you would do this work among us for our joy and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.